and to present this plaque as our thank you for spending time with us and being here and welcome home. Thank you very much. I've got one more thing to say and it'll only take me a second. I've got two words that I want you all to remember. They're very important. And if I leave you with anything, I'm going to leave you with these two words. And those two words are, I'm Batman. canceled it because it was a mad rush uh, that last couple weeks um, to spend all this stuff I had banked just in case something happened. Right. And I'm like, I'm going to go get my eyes checked. I had LASIK when I was like 21 and I was basically told by this person like, uh, I mean, this is kind of a waste of money for you. Like, I mean, your <laughs> eyes will get worse as you get older, but you're not quite... Sure. They're like, we can do a little something for you. And I don't notice too much of a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, probably should have taken them off because I really don't like them with all this. Because I have a giant, I have a 40 inch television in front of me right now. Gotcha. And this is, so there's a lot of yeah, it's, blonding yeah, glare. Uh, mm-hmm. That's its own issue. Uh, it's overkill. But um, yeah, no, that's it. This was like, I've got to burn money on something, so I'll just buy some glasses. <laughs> I'm going to get some fashionable glasses. That's what I'll do right. in my ear. Uh, then I'll catch COVID. So, <laughs> still a little salty about that. I, I can tell. <laughs> a whole year, not seeing anybody. You made it out to the other side. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I don't know how Teddy feels about it. I think he got it far worse than I did because I never had any sort of breathing issues or anything. Um, he had lung like lung pain, uh, like months or a month or so after. Even. I was telling Jared, uh, it was about I think last week was the first week I felt normal again. The only thing mm-hmm. I got. Um, I didn't have any problem catching my breath or anything like that. Didn't really feel that sick. Um, it just felt like someone was just pushing on my chest the whole time for like a month. Uh, it just felt like someone had set a, a barbell, just a weight on my chest. Like sleep paralysis. And um, <laughs> that felt weird. Uh, now, if I was like up yeah. and out doing stuff, I would just forget about it because it wasn't like a pain. It was just like a sensation. And right. um, that has gone away. But that was. It would still be scary. It was unnerving. What other? <laughs> right yeah. your, your heart. Just... That's not a. You don't catch. You know, it's like when I get flu symptoms or a cold, I'm used to that. Mm-hmm. I know what that feels right. like. Uh, that being so foreign and we don't know, you know anything about it still. Uh, my energy level is pretty. Was down. <clears throat> I could tell that because I would do the same things and I would just come home and like want to take a nap. Just. I mean, yeah. But not six, but. So yeah, just like that. first trimester pregnancy. Yeah, I'm sure same Sounds shit. Like. Whatever they got through. <laughs> exactly the same. All right, we're back. It's New Year. Uh, we took like three months off. Uh, I don't know how much I'll leave in the edit. My bitching about catching COVID because, <laughs> <laughs> on the one hand, some people might have sympathy. I'm like, well, you know, this little podcast is meaningless. Take your time. On the other hand, uh, as I just mentioned to you. Uh, I didn't have that serious effect, so I'm sure there are people who have been touched in 
far more despairing ways than what I'm saying. Like it felt a little awkward. It felt a little uncomfortable. So our dead listeners are really unhappy right now. Those, I mean, those are the ones I, I care about. Like only, <laughs> only in the hopes that there's no way we can anger them, and whatever devices they had are still auto downloading the episodes. So still getting those clicks. are good numbers to have. Uh, <clears throat> so where we left off, um, this is actually probably like the most iconic moment. If we're if we're doing our little Batman '89 introduction, this is where we get right at the six minute mark. Batman is shot by these two nameless. I don't know if they are named in the the credits. I don't think they are. Nameless. Oh yeah, well, maybe thieves, they thugs, and uh, you get the iconic. You know, what are you? I'm Batman, which has uh, not only been aped in pop culture uh, non Batman properties, but even in later Batman films with different actors, different universe have to give like the sort of tip of the cap, like the, the, uh, I don't know, I guess the, the baton being handed off to a new generation sure. of Batman. So I was a little bit hesitant to not be at full capacity to talk with you about this. Cause I just expected you would come in fully aroused and wrecked <laughs> for this particular, Guns blazing. this particular introduction. Uh, since this is such an important movie, uh, to you from your childhood, well, I mean, you think uh, how important it, it is even still now for like someone like uh, Michael Keaton, who's been in you know countless films, and it's still probably the most well-known quote from any film he's ever been in. It's something you still see him do from time to time if he's on like late night or uh, or something like Seems that. Seems like he so, has I mean, it's, fun with it now. Maybe post I think so. Birdman, where he got to tackle that that sort of the yeah. actor being typecast in a certain way, like. Uh, that, that's to say nothing effect of all the rumors that he's actually coming back to be Batman again. It seems like he's had the opposite track of uh, Harrison Ford, who did come back to be sure. Han Solo. And I remember one of the interviews where, you know, it's a press junket. Uh, one of the reporters was trying to be playful with Harrison Ford, which I would <laughs> I would never attempt that. I would never try to be cheeky with him where he the question posed to Harrison Ford now was who who shot first, Han Solo or Greedo? And his rebuttal was, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I think, spoiler alert for, you know, The Force Awakens, if there can be such a thing at this point, the only reason Harrison Ford came back was so he could finally kill off the character to participate <laughs> in the death of Han Solo. I hope that's not Michael Keaton's rationale, because that would be pretty upsetting for me. It's different, though, honestly. right? Like with It is. Um, I think that's been the, like, if you want to compare it to something like Star Wars and this sort of iconic nature, um, those actors had uh, a very big hand in building the character, or at least the persona of the character. And so trying to move on from that is something that they've struggled with. Uh, I would say Star Wars probably has fallen in the trap of really leaning into the Skywalker stuff far longer than I thought they would up to this point and not making uh, a new path for themselves. Well, it's kind of like what you were talking about with, uh, you know, uh, Han Solo starts with, you know, Harrison Ford, right? There's, so there's no previous source material where it's like, this is just his interpretation. Mm-hmm. We're not, we're connecting him to that character forever. <clears throat> How many different Batmans have there been just in, in our lifetime? Uh, not to mention, you know, like a, you know, an Adam West or, or something like that, right. or the serials even before that. So, you know, for, for someone like a Keaton, outside of the fanboys like myself, you know, that, that just can't let the idea go that he is, in fact, Batman. You know, he's probably been able to, to kind of discard that a little bit more, separate himself from it. And 
because that you know that fanboy is amazing as big uh, as it is with Star Wars, it's something he can kind of like go back to and kind of you know like tickle us a little bit. Uh, you know, I guess if you know that's what I'll go with as far as that, I can see. that description. Yeah, a little tickling the fantasy involved. that you just presented. That's <laughs> all laid out, right? I've I've written a lot of material on it. Um, but I think that's really cool about, uh, and I know this isn't necessarily, you know, how we were you know, planning to, to discuss this. Um, but I think that is really cool about Michael Keaton, just in a general sense is, is it's a property that you would think that there's potential for him to kind of get annoyed with it or just, just bombard it with it over the years. But he, he's still able to, to find the fun, I guess you could say in, in kind of a fantastical world anyway. Um, it would kind of be sucky if he was like disillusioned by it or just annoyed with something that we view as just this is part of our youth, I guess you could say. So um, you're right. This is kind of that that introduction that we get into what kind of Batman we're going to get. Um, I would say more so than the intro or even the first you know couple of minutes that we've already discussed, this experience where you have this, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know if it's leather clad. I'm not really sure what type of material that is. I'm not a seamstress, but, um, but this, this, um, you know, this, this jet black on jet black with, with hardly any color except for the yellow, really iconic emblem. Uh, you're brought into an experience that will suggest this is not your mother and father's Batman. You better strap in. Well, right? there's, there's, it was the first chance they got to, other than maybe in the, uh, the comic book industry, like with Frank Miller's The Dark right. Knight Returns, uh, at least a film version, it was certainly reclaiming uh, Batman. Uh, and I think, you know, if there was such a thing as fan service at the time, uh, we wouldn't have considered it as such because this was a, the first time they were getting to see the Batman movie they loved in the comics. And that's a little unfair because there's been different, if you go decade by, by decade, it's not that the Adam Western right. was that far off from its own time period as far as what the Batman comics were like. But certainly getting into the late 80s with Frank Miller's work, yes, this was uh, planting their, their flag down saying, like, okay, this is the first, right. quote-unquote, real Batman. Now, this is going to be attached to uh, Silence of the Lambs, which, uh, strangely, I didn't plan this because I mentioned getting sick and just holidays and the delay. There's a new, I think, CBS procedural that just started uh, called Clarice. And that's something that we do get into later on in the episode as far as when it came to a direct sequel of The Silence of the Lambs with Hannibal that you lost um, Jodie Foster, but you kept Anthony Hopkins. And right. the awkward dance of trying to give people what they want when really what they want to see again was Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster uh, battled out. What's interesting in this um, about minute and a half here is not only do we get I'm Batman, it, the minute that we're ending with uh, ends with the introduction of Harvey Dent, which does seem like kind of the lost thread of the Burton verse. Um, right. Because obviously when you get to Nolan's work, he's a central figure in the dark Knight. Not so much Batman forever with what Tommy Lee Jones was doing as <laughs> Jim Carrey's sidekick in that verse. It's a whole different dance right there. Do you, do you as a super fan of the 89 Batman having regrets that, Billy D. Williams, going back to I guess Star Wars, strangely, uh, didn't get to kind of finish out Harvey Dent here. He's he's kind of just a recognizable name that's set up as like sure. maybe he'll be in the sequels, but obviously with hindsight, we know it doesn't really go anywhere. 
Right. Doesn't come to fruition, but clearly it was at least in the inner workings or the kind of the assumed uh, kind of role he was going to be playing in, in match, maturing Harvey Dent into Two Face, and maybe that would have you know went with that whole arc between the two of them. Man, I've thought about this a couple of times. More than uh, a at couple, least. I'm sure. <laughs> More than a couple. More probably ever ever since I first kind of came across that that nugget of information in the early days of the internet. Uh, oof. I try to wrap my head around the, the idea of Billy D. Williams uh, in that particular role in a Tim Burton film and how that works in 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 any way that's not its own level of campy. I don't know. It's, I have a hard you know, time myself I, seeing him as Two Face proper. As Harvey Dent, I can easily see it. Sure, attractive, sure, smooth, uh, charming. You know, I can, I can see I can see all of that. A certain degree of grace uh, operating right. within that that world. Seeing him deranged and demented, um, maybe that's just me not having enough experience with his performances on screen. But going sure. back to the Harrison Ford thing, he's pretty iconic as cool, charming, sexy dude in Star Wars as Lando. Exactly. And that fits as Harvey Dent. But yeah, I don't I don't know if I ever wanted to see Billy D. Williams as two face. Well I guess maybe that's to the credit of, of uh Tim Burton vision for a Batverse because we thought the same thing, or at least they thought the same thing at the time about, you know, casting a Michael mm-hmm. Keaton to to play brooding Batman. Maybe people could see him as a you know, as a uh you know more dumpy Bruce Wayne, but definitely not Batman. And the same thing for Jack Nicholson, right? And so, you know, maybe not really understanding whatever thing that he saw um, in, in their previous performances that would suggest that, that this is something that could apply. Um, you know, every Billy Williams film I've ever seen, and I've seen a couple because my mother has always had a crush on him, and my dad thought he was him. And so <laughs> it was... Actually, I got to tell a story. Okay. I do. I'm sorry. This will this will actually be in line with this, and I'll probably never ever get a chance to tell it again. <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget being in the store with my father. Um, we were uh, leaving, I think Walmart or something, and we uh, were uh, exiting the store, and we happened to walk by two uh, elderly women, and one of them said something to the effect of uh, something like, uh, "He looks like Billy D. Williams." Right? These two old older white ladies. He overhears them, I overhear them, and I'm probably like seven or eight years old. My dad was not a smiler. It's just not something that he really did. But the biggest smile came across <laughs> his face that we talked about it like the entire 30-minute like, trip home about, did you hear what they said? Well, yeah, clearly I did. The first thing, we don't even carry the groceries into my house. The first thing he does when he gets home he's, is, and this is how my father would have spoke to my mother, Rose, they said I look like Billy D. And he was just like overjoyed with the idea that in 1994 or whatever, these two elderly women would have thought that he looked like, you know, uh, Billy Dee from 1975 or whatever. So I guess for me, when it comes to, I guess, you know, looking at Harvey Dent in that in that regard, uh, I'm trying to just wrap my head around any or him playing a role that was not supposed to be smooth. Mm. Right. That's the whole idea. Uh, you're you, like you already said in, in a much more eloquent way than I can he is smooth, right? He is black cool. That when he was on the cover of Ebony magazine many years ago, that's what it sits in black cool. And so then when you look at someone who is, um, you know, has, you know, uh, not really a handle on his, you know, on his way of thinking and his cognition, he's kind of all over the place. He's split in his mind and his behaviors. I don't know if we buy that fully, Unless he's got another level that he could go to as far as an actor. 
So I don't know. It also seems that the way they handled the the Joker kind of ate up a lot of possible Harvey Dent transformation content, which I think is why when you get to Dark Knight, sure. when you have the, actually those two characters combined, it's very important you don't have the Joker's transformation. He's just a guy on right. the street corner, and he wears makeup, and he makes up stories about how he got his scars. Um, but when you're talking about Billy D and Jack Nicholson kind of working within the same time period, Nicholson maybe a little, slightly older, maybe a decade older mm-hmm. as far as working yeah. in film. Also a man that we perceive to have a massive ego. And the way he plays Jack Napier, massive ego, uh, sleeping with his boss's uh, girl, and then him being disfigured and kind of loses, losing right. his mind. It, we Maybe Burton didn't have any particular interest in Two-Face, and maybe in his version of it, uh, that would have been repeating themselves somewhat. A little bit. Jack Nicholson's a little performance. Bit. Um, you, you actually, I mean, you bring up a good point that I'm not, I don't know if I've ever really thought about, but just the fact that his transformation itself really falls some of those same kind of thematic beats. It really does. Even like with the, uh, you know, the kind of that mob boss, uh, presentation, which I know is, you know, it's an element throughout all of, you know, Batman's rogues gallery. Uh, but still falling in, you know, in the vat or, you know, having half your body blown off or, or in a fire or whatever, um, how do you repeat that without absolutely just repeating that in, in every way? Luckily they didn't. And we got, you know, a better version. Yeah, we did. Uh, and Burton goes, uh, Oh, I thought you meant 95. Oh you know. no. <laughs> I was, I was going to say Burton when he got yeah. his hands on what he wanted to do as villains. He just, he goes with animals. He's like, give me the penguin and Catwoman, And we're just going to go full tilt into that regard. And, we will get to Batman Returns uh, pretty quickly because I think we're you know currently we're in 1991 as far as going through our blockbusters right. and that was 92, um, but yeah as of now it is uh, going to be the Silence of the Lambs, and unfortunately uh, for my dear listeners on this show I'm bringing on my co-host from Sober Cinema which is a show that you probably do not listen to, um, Jared Dotson will come on to talk the Silence of the Lambs with us and why did. He get chosen for that because Derek's wife, who also would have been a mental health expert, chose not to come on to talk. I forgot about that. Talk about one of the greatest female heroes in film, Clarice Starling, played by Jodie Foster. So instead, we get uh, an expert on women, Jared. Jared Dotson. Jared Dotson. There you go. Well studied. Thank you, Barney. What happened to your drawings? Punishment, you see, for Migs. Just like that gospel program. When you leave, they'll turn the volume way up. Dr. Chilton does enjoy his petty torments. Did you mean by transformation, Doctor? I've been in this room for eight years now, Clarice. I know they will never, ever let me out while I'm alive. What I want is a view. I want a window where I can see a tree or even water. I want to be in a federal institution far away from Dr. Chilton. What did you mean by fledgling killer? Are you saying that he's killed again? I'm offering you a psychological profile in Buffalo Bill based on the case evidence. 
I'll help you catch him, Clary. You know who he is, don't you? Tell me who decapitated your patient, Doctor. All good things to those who wait. I've waited, Clarice, but how long can you and old Jackie boy wait? Our little Billy must already be searching for that next special lady. Three, two, one. I will say that the uh, last time... Uh, I guess for the last two that you and Teddy did with me mm-hmm. on both of your girls' tracks, it barely visually signified the really? countdown. Because I'm usually looking for the four lines, like where mm-hmm. I said three, two, one, and then a clap. Right. Was and the sound was there? I just don't know why visually. Because I was like scrubbing all over, like where the fuck did we actually start this bullshit? And <laughs> it's that weak ass clap. <clears throat> Gotta get some more power in those. <laughs> I was actually looking at finger. Uh, Oh God! Gr- <laughs> 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 yes, I was trying to think of things for my Christmas list to send to my mother. <laughs> if you need some, I thought we were back on the phone thing on Derek. Like, no, no, I don't care how small my hands are. Give me the biggest thing you got. <laughs> I've got the best camera. I'm really insecure about my hands, as you could tell. I've never noticed it. Um... We were watching Lost Highway last night, which Brittany and I both fell asleep to. That was our Halloween movie, and we made about 45 minutes, uh, fell asleep. Uh, but she noticed, and I never had, probably because of uh, of the actress's breasts, but uh, Patricia Arquette has really, like, meaty hands. Like, <laughs> it's like a Seinfeld episode. Like, and I, of course, I've never once looked at her hands. Like, true romance, mm-hmm. boyhood, whatever it is. Just looking at Patricia Arquette. And, but the way David Lynch had her, like, dressed, she was wearing, like, this, it's almost like a Morticia Adams black gown. Mm, yeah. It cuts off right at the wrist, so all you're seeing is hand. And she was, like, doing this, and Brittany, it was immediate. She's like, ooh, <laughs> look at those meaty paws that she's got. Meaty. And now, now I can't see anything else. So, Derek, next time, whenever coronavirus is over... And you're over at Dave's house every weekend. I'll uh, I'll be looking at your hands just to see. Me and Dave will hold like. them up together to compare sizes. <laughs> Sign him up. <sighs> All right. Yeah. Okay. So we'll do uh, Silence of the Lambs, uh, which. Okay. So for uh, the new version of the Grand Gesture, uh-huh. uh, the Derek Stewart version. The non-Dave version. Um, I already, I already I like it better. Two point oh. Everyone else, <laughs> <laughs> including Dave. Uh, this, this is uh, our first. And Derek, I don't know if you remember the list we're working off of, but since we're focusing on eighty-nine blockbusters to come and challenge the merits of Tim Burton's Batman 1989. I highly doubt we're going to get another Best Picture winner in this. Uh, made equally strange by the fact that it's a horror film. I think I think it's the only horror movie uh, under that category to ever win Best Picture. So for that reason, to class up the joint, we bring on 
the nasty Hellcat from Sober <laughs> Cinema. I don't feel a lot of genuine uh, commentary in that uh, description of me, but... Cue uh, goodbye horses right now. It's <laughs> your entrance music. Well, I would fuck me, so proceed. <laughs> and you do. <laughs> and I do frequently. <laughs> so I gave the film its due credit of winning Best Picture before we went there. But uh, Jared, thank you for joining the Grand Gesture First time with Derek, I think second time on the show, you did talk about throwing your back out, humping a woman <laughs> on your last appearance. That was that was before I was a part of the show then, because I would have remembered that. Yeah, that was with uh, David, dearly departed David. <laughs> May he rest in peace. <laughs> May he rest in peace. <laughs> but you were excited to come on for Silence of the Lambs because we're recording this the day after Halloween, and Jared, I think this was a part of your... Was this just like an October watch just for, for pleasure? No podcast? Because I think you said you had watched it recently. It's just one of those, like, I'm bored as fuck and I'm going to go through Netflix. And then it's like, hey, Silence of the Lambs is on there. I've not watched that in forever. Recommended so. to you. Basically, Which, uh, recommended, uh, you know, scrolling through the confessions of serial killers and shit. And that's recommended to me. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's appropriate chronologically throw a five dollar word at you uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh, behind the uh, curtains podcast listeners we're doing a uh i guess a parent trap like switch here with my co-host uh jared is guesting on this show from sober cinema and derek will be guessing on sober cinema uh for an elizabeth taylor film which could get equally perverted uh, <laughs> what I know about Derek <laughs> but, but I feel like we made a decision that we'll record Silence of the Lambs first to show it more respect and that plan's already out the window <laughs> before we even get there I can only blame your wife Derek because I really <clears throat> really pushed to have her on as the guest here uh, so we could have maybe someone of uh, sound uh, mind here to, to analyze the film from the female perspective and instead, we went a different way with with Jared. Pretty similar. <laughs> I think. That, I think Jared's fine. I'm just gonna leave that I, hanging. Yeah, there. Just... I, mean, I think Jared's he'll do a great job. He's got a lot of insight. <laughs> There's not he knows, much. Genuine... He knows Jodie Foster quite well. And he would probably know. know what would make a woman tick, and you know, get in his car. So. I scare expert. women. Just go ahead and say it, both of you. He scares women. <laughs> we can make sense of this. We'll make sense Question. of it. There you go. We will. We'll make sense of it. So this is like a, the established, like, not greatest horror film of all time, but the most uh, respected, I guess, in circles of people who don't like the horror genre or don't uh, really respect uh, the films that are classified as such. <clears throat> this one broke through. But I'll, I'll put it to both of you, because both of you like horror movies more than myself. And so in some ways, I feel kind of like a, um, I don't know if hipster would be the word with it. It's like it's like a Johnny-come-lately. Like when a horror film has been verified as like, no, no, this one's actually good. That's when I'll come in and, and give it a watch. Um, but to you two, uh, and considering that all of us, including Derek, because he likes to play the, the, the youth card, the youth demo card, we were all too young for it when it came out, so we're already coming to it after it's already established classic. Do either one of you, we'll start with, with Derek, I guess, uh, come with any preconceived notions on your first watch of this one? Like, oh, this is a classy, scary movie. Um, 
you're, you're, I guess, calling me to think back. Uh, I remember the first time watching it, maybe 2012, 2013. So I was a little late to it myself as, as someone who enjoys this genre of film. Um, but I think for the most part, I often enjoyed the, uh, the sleazy previous decade, right? Of slasher <laughs> flicks. Uh, or just, just be- sleaziness in general. Well, that's why we have Jared on. Uh, (laughs) Renowned pervert. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I I, I think I had some preconceived notions about 90s, uh, I guess you could say horror films in general. Um, Even as someone who enjoyed the genre itself, I often thought of a lot of those films, especially in the early 90s, the psychological thrillers. Oftentimes for me, veered a little bit away from like the the dirt and grime and getting dirty with horror films. Right? It's too, it was too clean of an aesthetic, um, and so no longer blue collar. Right? Right? Absolutely. Um, now I'm, I'm not all the way to like a trauma films guy, right? The the real sleaze of of this genre. But at the same time, I was like, this is too clean um, and not something that I could really um, you know kind of envelop myself in. And then I watched the film, um, and it can get pretty, it can get as dirty as any other horror film, I, I think, uh, can. But there's, like you said, there's a certain level of respectability, um, from every performance that's in this film, uh, visually, uh, just their actual decision to explore from a psychological perspective, uh, sociopathy in, in such a real way in such a believable way, it, it adds a level of validation to a genre that really, quite honestly, horribly needed it, um, coming off the heels of, of an entire decade of just churned out slasher films. So it was really, I think for the, for the genre itself, it was a great thing. And if you can get people that were on the fringe, either the hardcore folks, uh, that were really into, to traditional horror or folks like yourself, like you were saying, that were kind of on the, f- you know, fence about wanting to believe horror can be good. It pulls in a lot of people. Um, so it, it, it does a wonderful job with that. Jared, I think you're probably more of a mix guy, right? <laughs> Elaborate. <laughs> He's the one that throws the semen at Jimmy Foster. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Now I know why I've been invited here. <laughs> I prefer prefer a more direct approach. <laughs> Semen throwing. Derek was making too much sense. We have to cut for, uh, for uh, nonsense for a couple of minutes, and then we'll go back. I think back. it's that I droned on for so long, and Jared actually forgot your initial question. I just want to get to the real question. You know, I'm working my way down to, like, when can we talk about MIGs? Uh, I'm sure that probably probably would have been. I was allowed to watch quite a bit when I was younger. That might be the only content to where it would give my parents pause. Like, oh, he's. We don't want to teach the boy about semen throwing just yet. We don't want him to think that's what one does. When you can do that. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> everything else is more. You know, it, there, there's a a build up. There's a a general. I guess is the, uh, I don't know if the kids would say, there's an edging quality to all this. Like, one with the relationship between Lecter and Starling, where it seems like they're each trying to draw the other one down to a point in their relationship as such to get what they want out of it. 
And in a way, the film does too. I think the film is kind of edging you along, as Derek was saying, like, no, no, come on, come on. This is a serious-minded, scary movie. We're going to talk about scary things, but we're going to elaborate on them to make you comfortable with it, and then we're going to occasionally uh, sock you in the back of the head. And one is Migs that I... Unfortunately, or fortunately for our listeners through Jared or the bus, you know, the super fans, they, they want that. Uh, the other stuff is like Lecter himself. Like when it goes nuts in the third act and he is beating a security guard um, and then, you know, spoiler alert, I guess if you've not seen this classic, uh, putting on one of their faces as a disguise. Um, you, I mean, if someone just dropped in on cable television to that and saw that sequence, they would think, oh, I have no, I have no wish to watch this type of movie. Right. But I feel like if you join from the beginning, the the film has elevated that material to a point where you can kind of accept it, when really it does at times fit within those genre trappings of. I mean, we are literally removing a man's face and wearing it. Um, now that's not getting into the sequel because I think Hannibal goes full tilt into yeah. that <laughs> hysterics. Oh, I think in a it's. It, Horror is a difficult genre anyway. And when you think about, you know, the scene you were just talking about, taking someone's face and removing it, you know, most folks would just click and turn the channel because they're like, this is this is fantasy almost. This stuff would never really happen. Although, when you look at like folks like Ed Gein, kind of did. Uh, and so you're, you're taking a material that uh, doesn't have a lot of respectability, elevating it but by also providing context that, hey, this can happen. You could actually have someone like a Hannibal Lecter that existed um, and walked around in street clothes and, uh, you know, have a Buffalo Bill character. It's not so outside of the box that people like this exist. Now, and so- Jared knows how I feel about this, though, because we just did an episode on <laughs> seven. And we're going to do seven for this podcast Ooh. as well. Cause I think just from a visual perspective, you kind of have to do seven with yeah. the Tim Burton Batman as far as how they, they approach the city. Um, Jared knows for that conversation how I feel about super smart LeBron James serial killers, where it's like they're just a, they're just were just always designed to do this thing. Like look, look at this physical specimen. Look at this brain it was always meant to come up with this elaborate way to murder people. Yeah. And Jared, <laughs> how do I feel about that? Malarkey. <laughs> not a word i used but i like it <laughs> it kind of encapsulates basically an entire 30 minute podcast that me and jared did on seven <laughs> so what's your okay so what's your pushback on well and i don't know if I, I necessarily would go with the the narrative that people are just born with that level of sociopathy um part of me thinks uh, or has a little bit of belief in social learning and your environment and all of that kind of stuff but um you know, I don't know if I would suggest necessarily that like a Hannibal Lecter, it comes out of mother's womb and he is, his development would suggest that he is going to be this type of person. Um, but we could suggest that, that what he experienced in his youth, you know, kind of created a foundation that, that was only exacerbated by everything else. So yeah, I, I, mean, I don't know. That's fair. I think it's just more of his, <laughs> his developed skills at it. <laughs> it's just what bothers me. Cause it was just like, you know, uh, he is this other world, otherworldly character. Like, right. So Jared, when <clears throat> Jody Foster walks in, like mm-hmm. I, I think it was Hopkins' idea to have him already standing, already waiting for. Her. Like he's like, no, no, this is what Hannibal. He should already be aware that she's coming. You're getting into almost superhuman territory where he's like, with one whiff through this like plexiglass, 
he can define like you know how she shops how she prepares right. herself for the, that sort of thing it's like mm. we are getting into uh you know th- this is not <laughs> this is not steve kerr level serial killer <laughs> this is michael jordan punching steve kerr in the back of the head top serial killer well it's also you know you start thinking about it like this you have to dramatize everything because it's a movie like you have to make them almost superhero levels of of smart and conniving and otherwise you've got you know we've discussed that plenty of times on sober cinema is like <laughs> the the normal serial killer of of, of real world is uh, usually much more. I mean, never that elaborate, never that clever about anything. It's well, maybe it's more like Buffalo Bill, honestly. Yeah, pretty like, much because he makes mistakes. I mean, mm-hmm. he definitely is terrifying in what he's doing. But I wouldn't look at just if you just made a film about him. I don't think he would be that interesting being interviewed for you know an hour of screen time or whatever it is mm-hmm. behind the glass. Because I think he's. I mean, just look how he talks to his victims. He's, <laughs> you know, I don't think Jodie Foster is going to be like man. We can get so much out of this guy. I think it's just like, all right, he has problems. Uh, as Derek said, maybe alluding to like how he grew up, uh, sure. self-esteem <clears throat> issues that is now manifesting and attacking mm-hmm. other beings. Um, but I don't think that you would want to hang out <laughs> with him and listen to Buffalo Bill be like, well, here's your problem with childhood. <laughs> this is what I think. <laughs> You're <laughs> easily uh, diagnosable, <laughs> Mr. <Yeah>. Bill. <laughs> I think Hannibal Lecter uh, appeals so much because when you think of serial killer, you don't associate that with somebody that's super intelligent or, you know, that clever about things. It's usually a more I think it's more base, broad. Yeah. I don't, I don't associate them with being so uh, knowledgeable in various fields. So worldly, cosmopolitan, all that kind of stuff. And Derek, can you maybe you can correct me as, as far as you're the only one here with some background on this. Um, I I think of serial killer as like defined by one thing or one obsession, not multiple things. Like Hannibal Lecter is interested in art, music, mm-hmm. the conditioner that Jodie Foster uses. Is like Jesus, man. Where I, I was about to say, where do you find the time? But I guess that's all that's all he has is time now. <laughs> but but still, um, yeah, it's usually like the the one sort of trait, the one sort of hang up, which is also like in in film entertainment is the, usually the undoing of the the serial killer. Uh, as we'll see in seven, when Derek gets to hear a live version of me just yelling malarkey uh, <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> uh, t- so, when you look at this spectrum, you can, I guess, in in a way, you're you're both of you are right and wrong. I guess at the same time, you you I like do the first s- one. There you go. Um, <laughs> when, uh, when you look at folks who have a, that level of like uh, antisocial kind of uh, concepts. One, they obviously generally have a lack of of empathy. Uh, they're pretty apathetic about other people. Uh, they tend to often have little concern about social norms, right? They're able to just kind of do things because it feels good or it feels right to them. So they don't care if this old lady is across the street and is blind. If they want what's in her purse, they'll take what's in her purse, right? They often do tend to be uh, pretty uh, uh, intellectual Um and they often tend to have a desire to like edge really close to that line between getting caught and escaping, right? Getting away with what they're doing because of that level of narcissism that's also associated with it, right? If I can get that close to the line and fool who's around me, um, I'm even smarter than, than the smartest person in the room. Uh, there's a, a serial killer 
Edmund Kemper, um, who would hang out with, you know, the police officers at the local bar and they would talk about the killer that, that is, that was in the area that was him. And he's just chilling out, like having a drink. Usually they get tripped up by their own ego, uh, oddly enough. Hmm. Um, and then when you also look at the idea that uh, when we're talking about like having various interests and things of that nature, yeah, sure. Not all, right. Not across the spectrum, uh, you know, with the supply to everybody, but oftentimes the ones that are quite intellectual and want to be able to use those skills to get over on other people, they tend to absorb a lot of information with the explicit purposes of being able to use it later uh, to exploit someone else. So I will enjoy the arts or I will enjoy, you know, culinary skills. I'll learn about uh, human emotion and human behavior because at some point uh, I'm going to use this to, to get what I want. From someone I'm else. Be a guest on a podcast. I'm gonna be a guest on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, and they get really good at being like smart about their key areas. So Hannibal Lecter, mm. bringing I guess bringing it back, Hannibal Lecter knows a lot about uh, you know human behavior and nonverbal communication because that's his like like primary, secondary, and tertiary er, uh, like areas of interest. I I've heard like my wife has listened to some of your all's podcasts before. And to her, not it almost, sober cinema, not so. sober cinema. Um, <laughs> Thankfully, no one listens to that. Uh, but no, uh, and and for someone that's not a film person, they'll say things like, "Wow, when you know when when Mike or Jared or whomever talk about film, it almost seems like a superpower because you know something on a transcendent level that the normal person doesn't know." Does that make sense? Like you have an uh, an area of knowledge about film that most normal film goers don't and Hannibal Lecter knows about like human behaviors and conditions even on a fantastical level for this film but in a way that like 99% of us normal people wouldn't have well you've lost Mike you've already lost him and his penis is engorging at this very moment (laughs) as sick as that is but yeah, that's pretty sick. He's useless You're right. to us. There are. I do know a lot about movies. Goddamn it! Among us, <laughs> I take everything back. There are super. Never super mind. Gods Just on the sky. <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm not going to disagree with that. Only in the sense that I think that, like, from movies, for me, I, I understand that from a young age that that was going to be my my main passion and hobby. And I know how much time I put into it. So I guess I, I'm still going to use that as evidence can have lecture. I'm like, God damn dude. Now not everybody, you can't be good at everything. You gotta have one thing that you're into. You can't, you can't be dabbling all the time. On the other hand, he is in a room by himself for, you know, all of his days, uh, until he, he gets out in the world. But, um, Let's talk a little bit about Jodie Foster, because, you know, I tried to bring a woman on uh, to talk about this, and here we have, we're like, you know who's uh, uh, got the biggest cock in the room? Uh, Anthony Hopkins, uh, Hannibal. He's so great. He's so smart. <laughs> and, yeah, this, this this girl comes in, tries to talk to him and learn a few things. I think that's a um, that's a possible trap that they avoid, uh, especially with her having the, you know, sort of <clears throat> country bumpkin uh, accent that even Hannibal himself kind of makes fun of and then becomes um it's almost like a she's using things that other people see as a weakness uh and with hannibal it's not that he doesn't see it as a weakness or doesn't see her as lesser but he becomes this strangely paternal and protective figure over her so i mentioned Miggs earlier just as a joke as the man that uh in some form does sexually assault her uh and immediately 
uh, what does Hannibal do? He jibber jabbers. He does a, a live podcast with this guy through the cell wall and gets him to swallow his own tongue, which is a power I do not yet have on on these podcasts. But I I wondered I, on rewatch how much of that is because she's very young. They make a case that it's like she's you know fresh out of the academy. Um, how much of it, Jared? Do you think was purposeful on her part? Uh, I'm not trying to say that she's mm. not as intelligent as she's presented, but like, did she go into it knowing that there's certain traits that a man like Hannibal are is in some ways going to take for granted and is going to become under her sway as much as it seems like she's under his sway? Well, they kind of play that up throughout the movie. Is this kind of like she's very headstrong? She's well, the first scene of her is out training, so she can you know become stronger and, and uh, presumably, you know, move up in her field of, of occupation. So you're presented with her being a very strong character to begin with. I think she calls out her superior as well mm-hmm. when he's like, well, we were dealing with some good old boys and they, they like it when a woman is like told to leave the room for man's business. And mm-hmm. she comes back and it's like, well, you set the tone though. <laughs> like they're, they're still working underneath you. You have authority over them. And yet you still fall under their sort of uh, cultural norms as opposed to imposing your will, which I had forgotten that scene entirely Mm -hmm. that she's like, and she could have easily, and you almost expect someone who's as fresh as her to be like, okay, I get it. You know, Mm -hmm. you've, you've been around the block a few times. You understand how to deal with these, these hillbilly cops. That's how we'll do it. But instead she still holds him accountable Mm -hmm. for it, which I, I appreciate. Um, I've got to say it because there's not uh female on here and i know you two won't you're saying that woman that woman sassed him and need to be put back in her place yeah i'll let you say it <laughs> sometimes on podcasts you have to say the uh the nice thing just so you can then say the uh the not so nice because it's better for entertainment purposes you know get that the high rows as we call it in there the entire not nice segment um i just i just wondered just because <clears throat> I think under, you know, maybe a different director, that relationship, like there's all, all sorts of questionable content in, in particular with like fan fiction between relationships where it's like, you know, the, the bad boy. And in this case, you're talking about a really bad man as far as someone that can cause another person within 12 feet of him to, uh, to swallow his own tongue. Hmm. Some of those powers, um, you don't want this to be too titillating in a way like, Oh, look at, look at how she is, um, you know, some sort of damsel in distress and has brought out some goodness and some protective spirit in him. Like you don't want to fetishize Hannibal as some sort of savior like role, just because he's decent to one person who is also like decent to him. And it, I, I, I do agree. I think she weaponizes that the, some of those damsel in distress tropes, um, and, or some of those of lesser intelligent, right. Uh, concepts. All, all of us with the, with the, with the accent that we have, right. I've been in other parts of the country where you were immediately talked down to as if yes. you were someone that can't, you know, take directions. Uh, you know, you're not that educated, mm-hmm. like we're gonna have to speak slowly to you. Like, and it's interesting that I could see it. Like if you were certainly like if you were in a bar, say like in the Northern part of this country, that you know, we're no better. We would weaponize our southern accent, right? Because it's something interesting to someone else. Uh, I'm talking about you know, 
someone we're attracted to, not a Buffalo Bill type, Jared. Like you're, <laughs> I'm unless, not saying you're, you're going to go up to New England and start trying to haul couches in the back of a van or anything and then <laughs> drop that Kentucky Well, tarnation, I just can't get this couch in my van. <laughs> the way Jared plays up Buffalo Bill, just like you're just going to full 11 uh-huh. <laughs> on the patheticness, like stumbling, like Jared would, Pull off a fucking Charlie Chaplin, like Ted Bundy routine. <laughs> Planning full on his face, you know, banana peels. Uh, I just Whoops. imagined the, the whole moment. So, does... <laughs> Sorry, Derek. No, you're, no, you're being so dismissive of these uh, classic serial killers. <laughs> Here's how they could have done it better. Here's how. Let me ask you this, dear, uh, Jared. Do you feel as though uh, Lecter views uh, what's Jodie Foster's ca- uh, Clarice, Clarice? There we go. Uh, do you think he views her as an intellectual uh, equal in some regard, and that's why he has some of those? I, I guess as Mike said, like paternal feelings towards her. Mm-hmm. Like she, like you were saying, she presents herself as the as the bumpkin, and and kind of you know all this kind of stuff in their initial interactions. But there is something that's different about what you what we assume about their relationship than if anyone else had been sent in her place. Mm. Is it because he does see behind all of that with her and sees that there's someone like of transcendent intelligence, or is it something else? What, what do you think? I was actually thinking that uh, beforehand, getting ready for this podcast, I was I was thinking more so. You know, Lecter is dismissive of I can't remember the doctor's name in in the actual prison, but he's very dismissive of him, and he's also somebody of uh, intelligence. But it's maybe more so. You know, he sees him for what he is. He's he's mm. you know trying to, for lack of a better term, star fuck his way up the ladder. No, that's uh, exactly what he's trying to do. Yeah. So, yeah. so you know, maybe he sees some sort of different you know genuine motive in Clarice, and like you said. She doesn't try to hide her accent whatsoever, so she uses some tactics that maybe, you know, it's too, it's not good enough to get over on Lecter, but maybe there's a mutual respect there and something that he sees uh, in her attempts to try to crack the the puzzle that is him. Right. And, you know, he, help, he helps her way more than he, than he has to. Both Lecter and Starling are probably, by the world at large, seen as curiosities. Like her for being mm. like, oh, you're a girl doing this type of work Mm. and almost every time throughout the film even in the sort of climax they're trying to keep her away from as Derek would say uh, talking about the genre the nitty-gritty aspects Mm. of it Mm -hmm. Uh, they you know they don't want her there uh, weapon drawn when they when they bust down the door thinking they have the right address Uh, they do want to send her to Lecter to do the talking because I think in some way they think like oh the threat level has been reduced by her I, as a man, am too threatening to Lecter, so he won't give me anything because there's too much testosterone in the air, um, which is a way of saying you can do the job we can't, but only because but in some really. way you're lesser than us. <laughs> That's the only real yeah. reason is because you're you're weaker. That's the only reason you can... And I do think that he sees uh, the two of them as uh, from the outside world um, in that way, like we are with our, our country bumpkin accents uh, across the country, as... Uh, curiosities and amusements for other people and even as um you know established as he is as a serial killer and that really strange resume he has he's still seen as a freak show i mean he's still bunking next to a man who throws his semen at a woman the first time she walks past him (laughs) 
That's that's like where they have put Lecter in this world. You are the same as this guy here. And so, yeah, I think, Jared, when you mentioned uh, Chilton as the uh, the doctor that mm. is basically the key master of all these freaks, uh, he's not much different than like a carnival barker in that mm. regard. Like he's very protective over the, these are my rogues galleries. I'll write the book on them. Uh, but we don't treat them with respect. Uh, we're just glad that we have, um, you know, rounded them up and we've thrown them in this basement where I allow other people to come and like, you know, look at them hmm. much like, uh, the elephant man, which Jared and I did an episode on and we treated it with all the respect and very, dignity that it deserves. Very respectful to him and his <laughs> penis. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting. <laughs> I think that was our shortest episode maybe ever. <laughs> 15 minutes so because we couldn't hold it together long enough. Only so much <laughs> cock talk. Uh, <laughs> we didn't have our previous host, Josh Dotson, on there for 40 minutes of penis oh, talk. Oh, God. But, um, I, I actually like have a harder time watching Silence of the Lambs now <clears throat> only mm. with the idea that Hannibal, the Hopkins version, has become like a franchise in that sense. Like I, I'm not talking about the TV series because I've not watched it, but I have watched... Uh, Hannibal, which I, th- I think is fun and over the top, but is ridiculous, uh, and is treating him like uh, a walking sort of freak show. And then Red Dragon, which, um, you know, I'd say my my problem with that one there is that there's too much of let's let's go back to this prequel form and put more Anthony Hopkins in in this, um, and it, it makes you appreciate more like the the chemistry I guess that Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins have that like sometimes it just doesn't work. I love Edward Norton. But those scenes with Lecter and Red Dragon, they do feel more just like, all right, just get him to point out the crazy on this sheet and where to find more crazy and <laughs> let's just get on with it. Whereas I do feel like what Demi does with Silence of the Lambs is there seems to be, in some strange way, a genuine bond and relationship between these two pe- two people that have been built, which makes the, the ending kind of work for me. I'm not a true crime guy and I don't really fetishize like people who take others uh, lives, but like, you know, I don't mind the film ending with a joke. That's like, I have to meet a friend for dinner. It's like, uh, not you baby, not you, but uh, that <laughs> other guy that we don't like. And it's almost, it's strange for me that for a film so serious that it ends on the audience applauding, like, yes, go eat that guy. He's a prick. <laughs> he deserves to be <laughs> cannibalized. <laughs> I'm not sure where to go from there. That's a, Derek's got to clean it up to, with some serious yeah. take on it. Uh, <laughs> okay, so I guess I'll go in this direction. Um, it it seems to be a, an ongoing trend that every uh, depiction of a serial killer, in some regard, because we have some investment of the of the you know the car wreck or the train crash, we start to turn them into antiheroes, right? We start to put them on pedestals and romanticize these horrific uh, ideas and concepts. So it's really not a surprise that they're able to get away with doing that at the end of this film. And like you said, people were like, hmm, good show. Killed it. You killed it. Right? Another zinger. Like, th- that works because he's so interesting. And, and, and again, well, sociopathy, like the people that are on the fringe of our society that would do things like that, there is a certain level of interest. And, and this is what uh, you know, my, me and my wife talk about all the time uh, when it, in this regard. There's, it's interesting to me that there are people that, again, that exist in this world that are capable of those things. Now, I don't take it to the point of, uh, you know, you know, a circuit jerk over it, 
But at the same time, it, you know, that's, that's, I think that's why that does work because we as, as the audience are just as invested in him as, as Clarice is at this point. And it's, I hate to say it's, it's like, what's he going to do next? (laughs) (laughs) Like tune in next time. I I guess in fairness to them, it did take a while. It took them almost, almost a decade to get to that. But uh, yeah, you could smell the money in it like ooh, the further adventures of Hannibal on the road and all the people that he will eat and I think that's why there was a negative reaction to that film in particular because people were like ew I like this right. and it's like yeah that's because he was boxed in in the first one you can just you can just look at that character um, as, as some sort of theory of mm. what could happen right but you don't actually experience it so yeah Hannibal on the road uh, across the country just <laughs> maiming and ripping out people's guts uh, <laughs> cutting off people's heads Hey, it's not as not as fun as it used to be. It's, I wonder why that is. It's not as fun. It's oversaturation, and you can't get away with like um, hiding that you're kind of turned on by this idea just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, Jared. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> Down below. See, um, <laughs> Derek likes horror movies too. Why am I catching the bullets? <laughs> what do you think about death, Jared? I wish it would. I wish it would would come for me. (laughs) Hurry up! Hurry up! You're late. I'm trying my best with these cheeseburgers now. (laughs) Yeah, Jared would make for the most boring version of that. Follows just waiting for one last sexual encounter, and then it's off to sweet, sweet death. Oh, there you are, walking slowly. You start running towards it. <laughs> Come here, you. I've been waiting for you forever. It's <laughs> good stuff. I think, that, I think that does it. <laughs> that's enough for today. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> But Derek has actually been playing the serious role because with with Teddy, uh, Teddy was, dare I say it, Trumpian on those episodes. (laughs) Because it's like he just said crazy things. (laughs) It's like, okay, I guess we're talking about that now. Uh, Derek Derek informed me of like a like a a hit list of all the crazy shit that Teddy said (laughs) while we were playing games one night, and I was like, what? He said what? I said it's not even worth a listen. Not even worth it. I don't even deal with it. It is. Uh, it's strange because I get two text messages. <clears throat> one from Hiro that's like, "Yes, keep this going. This is great." Like he wants the haymakers. He wants people just throwing feces at, at the wall. And then <laughs> Dave's, which is like appalled, like I can't believe he would say something. <laughs> of course, knowing the two, I'm like, well. Clearly, we were doing something right, because Hyro says this. Like, at first, I'm like, oh, maybe that was too much. But then when Dave comes in with his, like, oh, my goodness, I'm like, no, no, we got to no. keep on this track. We keep that <laughs> feigning couch. He's uh, chaos. for Dave. He's just, he's just <laughs> enough chaos where you ask him a question, he stares at you, and then says something like, oh, I don't know. Or, oh, I don't, where am I right now? Where is my mind? And it's like, oh, okay, well, what do you do with this? That's fine. 